Hello, everybody. Welcome to 321 No Kidding. Happy to be here today. Pretty excited about this episode. I have a guest that I met virtually, actually, in an online class that I'm taking. And I feel like I struck gold. She has some amazing insight on the brain and all kinds of fun stuff. So she actually had so much information and I was so intrigued and I couldn't shut up and stop asking her questions that we're going to break this into two episodes. So here is part one of Odile Rammer. I hope you enjoy her as much as I do. Hello, Odile. How are you today? Very well, thank you. And so excited to be here with you. I'm honored to have you. You have a lot of great material and wisdom that I hope you can share with my audience. Thank you. So that my audience kind of has a foundation to get to know you a little bit, will you please introduce yourself and and tell them what you're about and why you're here with me today? Yes, absolutely. Hello, everyone. I'm Odile. And to remember how to pronounce my name, if you think of deal or no deal is the way to remember it. And I've been on quite a journey. I'm now 55 years old. And four years ago, I was struggling. I couldn't pay my bills. I was divorced, depressed. I was renting a room in a shared house in England and cleaning other people's houses, which I hated doing, but that was the only way I could think of to earn a bit of extra money. That and singing gigs, singing in pubs, but I still couldn't pay my bills doing it. I'd spent my whole life struggling. So I'm a hard worker. I have a very strong work ethic, but no matter what I did, I always ended up in a state of struggle. So emotional struggle, financial struggle, and physical struggle in that I had fibromyalgia and IBS. And so, and the doctors, you know, the doctors say, oh, there's no cure for fibromyalgia and that, well, I don't have it anymore. So (laughs) (laughs) that helps anyone. Congratulations. That's great. And it's all stress related, you know. And so I started my, started out as I was born into a show business family. So I was working from five and six years old, hence the strong work ethic. And my family were strugglers as well. They struggled financially. I became a, a professional actress and singer and freelancing, struggling, struggling all along, you know. Over that period of time, I eventually got fed up and realized that there was something in me because no matter how much I did the same as other people, I didn't get the same results and I couldn't understand. It was so frustrating. At one point, and I think this was 2006, I found myself in my car in front of a brick wall revving the engine. I had just got so uh, to that point where you think I don't know what to do anymore. And I just, I don't want to play anymore. That was my feeling. I was prepared. I wanted to just check out so that I could come face to face with whoever or whatever put me here and say, what were you thinking? <laughs> What's the problem? What, what am I supposed to do? You know, it was that kind of thing. And I had many of those rock bottom moments. And I think the reason it was so frustrating was because it wasn't like I wasn't trying. You know, I was trying really hard and I'd done a lot of self-development and stuff. Anyway, so that's who I was. And I am now very happy um, living in America, which is where I'd always wanted to live and married to the love of my life and doing what I love for a living and so on. So I'll let you get a word in now. (laughs) Well, that's very interesting. And, you know, being a gambling 
podcast, money is going to be a topic. And it's interesting to me that you didn't have an addiction, but still had money problems. Right. So, and you know, I think, and I think you've said this before in, in one of your other podcasts as well, is that I, th- I think we all have addictions. I think addiction is part of the human condition. And if it's not gambling, it's something else. And I was, I did actually smoke. I did have a smoking problem. I used to smoke a, a lot and I loved it. I had no intention of giving up. I tried to give up and then I thought, what the, you know, I enjoy it, so I won't give up. But here's what's fascinating. And I know this fits in really well, Bobby, with your, with the way you think as well, is that as I changed myself and as I changed how I thought of myself, my value, how I valued myself, so my self-worth and all that, I got in the car one day to drive somewhere and I used to love to smoke in the car. That was like a big thing for me. I couldn't imagine driving and not smoking. I was like, what do you do? So so I got in the car, lit a cigarette, took a drag and thought, oh my God, that's awful and put it out. And I just didn't like smoking anymore, which is weird, was really, really weird. But I think that as we change how we feel about ourselves and the beliefs, the subconscious beliefs that we have about ourselves and about how the world works and we get more and more empowered, then we don't need the whatever. And and then our behaviors change automatically to be more supportive of that sort of view of ourselves. You're a hundred percent right that I feel exactly the same way. I'm still smoking, unfortunately, but I'm so I worked on the gambling and uh-huh. then I'm finding that my relationship with alcohol is really changing. So yes. it's not as important. I, I haven't had quite the aha, draw the line in the sand moment, like you just described with the car, but I'm drinking less and less. I'm being cognizant of making those decisions. Am I doing it as a coping mechanism? You know, are these calories worth it? You know, there's all these, these things. And as I go on my adventure, and maybe you could speak to this too with the voices in your head, my voices, they kind of fight each other. One says, okay, you need to quit and work on this and be a good example. And then there's the other ones that I'm learning the forgive yourself, take time, relax. You've already accomplished this. I don't know if you feel that, that battle sometimes in your head or if you understand exactly what I mean. Oh, I know it well. <laughs> I know it well. And what I can tell you is that I will give you today some information and some techniques that will help with that, that will, that will, that will get to the root of what it really is and you can change it. That's Great. what's so exciting. Okay. Well, I'm going to dig into a little bit of our formal questions And I also have to tell you that part of what we learn where I go at at the center, we do a lot of conversation about the brain. We're not scientists or experts. You know, we've visited with some. I have one cohort that we've read Dr. Amen's books and we're like, we're just so fascinated. And guest speakers, you know, showing the dopamine lighting up. It's, It's very exciting to me. I can't repeat all the big words or explain it to anybody but it's so intriguing and I believe that it connects. So if you'd like to share with us, I don't know if you want to start with the, the childhood part and how ACEs relates or wherever you'd like to start on, on your philosophies. Yes, with pleasure. Well, <laughs> and, and I'll go on all day, so you'll have to stop me because this is my favorite topic as well. <laughs> so 
the there's two main parts to what I discovered, what, what helped me change, completely turn my life around, not only emotionally and physically, but also financially. And they apply to everything. The first part is gaining control over the emotional state, which means the chemical state of what, what chemicals your brain is producing, because that's what causes your emotions. And in keeping the prefrontal cortex of your brain, which is the the part of your brain where you do your thinking, your cognitive thinking, keeping that online. So that's the first part. And I'll go into more detail on that. And then the second part is changing the subconscious references that are triggering those chemicals in the first place. So I think the best place to start is with the emotions, because that's what we deal with all the time. So what happens is, Every thought in your, every time you have a thought, that's a connection between, and you probably know a lot of this already, but I'll just give a basic. So thoughts are connections between neurons in the neocortex of your brain. So that's the, the part of your brain that looks like a gray walnut. And every time we have a thought, it triggers the limbic system to produce chemicals. Basically speaking, negative chemical, uh, negative emotions are, or negative thoughts trigger stress chemicals like uh, adrenaline, cortisol, and so on. Happy thoughts or positive thoughts create uh, trigger the production of endorphins, serotonin, oxytocin, feel-good chemicals. So that's the basis. Now, what happens is that when we feel thought triggers those chemicals, the chemicals create a sensations in the body. And we, the conscious mind then recognizes those sensations as emotions, feelings, impulses. And that's how the subconscious controls the conscious mind. So I'll start to feel, let's say, anxiety. And so what the anxiety literally is, is it's stress chemicals in the bloodstream. That's all it is. But my conscious mind will immediately start looking for reasons for it because that's the conscious mind's job. So I'll think, oh gosh, yes, I have to call that person or I don't, I can't pay this bill or I'm worried about, you know, I don't know what to do or whatever those thoughts are. And that triggers more of those same stress chemicals and that becomes a vicious cycle. Now, the main problem with that, apart from feeling bad, is that blood drains from the prefrontal cortex of the brain where we do our cognitive thinking. So one of the effects of stress chemicals, which is the fight, freeze, flight state, is that blood drains from the front, that front part of the brain to the back of the brain for running away, fighting or pretending to be dead, which means that we literally can't think straight. So that the cognitive thinking part of the brain goes offline. And that's why you'll notice when you're upset or angry or frustrated or any or despondent, any kind of negative emotion, your thinking is different to when you're feeling happy and you can't strategize effectively. You see the world differently. You see yourself differently. You can't process information as effectively. It affects your communication, your problem-solving skills, and all of those higher levels of thinking because your brain is literally offline. That part of your brain is literally offline. So that's the important bit. I really like how you broke that down. You made it very easy to to digest. Oh, good, good. My interpretation of the subconscious and conscious and help me just to make sure I'm thinking about this correctly is the conscious mind is that little 5% and the subconscious is that 95% or 
90-10. Yes, that's right. But in addition to that, so, so that is true. But the key differences between the two is that the conscious mind's job is to make, make sense of everything. So that's the logic, that's the reasoning, that's the, um, you know, seeing things in the world around us. The subconscious and seeing things as realistic or unrealistic, judgment, that kind of thing. The subconscious has no ability to use logical reason, cannot tell the difference between reality and imagination, and cannot judge something as unrealistic. And this is why, this is why, number one, how the the subconscious manages to get away with so much. (laughs) And number two, why we can change it. That's, that is what enables us to change those programs. So for example, if you've ever been to see a scary movie, you'll notice that your brain and body go into the same state as they would if the threat was real. Your heart rate increases, your palms get sweaty, you can feel the fear. And the only thing stopping you from running screaming into the street is that your conscious mind knows it's just a movie, but your subconscious is triggering the fight, freeze, flight response in your brain and body. So for us addicts, if I understand what you're saying right, we have the same responses when we drive by a casino or see a scratch, whatever those things are, those chemicals are released and we feel that same reaction as the scary movie example. Exactly. Exactly. And that will vary slightly, you know, different times for different people and all of that kind of thing. But yes, the basic, the basic response is the same life threatening response. And it's the same response you'd have if you, if you were faced with a bear. Hmm. So that means there's hope to fix this thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's even more, which I'm very excited about to, okay, tell you, to share with you. <laughs> so, so with the, you know, you also find that you just have to think about something scary to feel the fear. And that's because your subconscious, when you think of the scary thing, your subconscious thinks that the scary thing is happening right now. The same happens the other way around, which is very useful. So if you take a moment to think about someone you love, or something that you find fun or funny, the same thing will happen. Your brain will start to produce those chemicals. Now, the challenging bit is that, and this is why it's easier for most people to feel bad than to feel good, because the challenge is that stress chemicals are stronger. So they're more, they have a bigger impact on the body and the brain. And that's because they're our security system. They're our survival system. So if you think about, you know, in nature, it's more important for us to be paying attention to the bear that is approaching than to the picnic we're having with our family (laughs) for survival purposes. So that's why when you're feeling angry or upset or worried or frightened or anxious or frustrated or any of those negative emotions, it's more difficult to just think positively or pull yourself out and feel feel happy again because you're in a survival state. So what we teach people, and I'm going to share with you today a very simple little exercise that will help to train your brain and body to, to get into a feel-good state in the moment. So because it just, it takes practice. I used to live in a state of fight, fight or flight, fight, freeze, flight mainly. And so I was constantly stressed 
So when I started to try and feel good, it felt weird, it felt really <laughs> uncomfortable. But now I live in a state of feeling good all the time. I'm triggered occasionally. It's usually technology that triggers me. But for the most part, it's become my new normal is feeling good. So the, the most important parts here are that emotions are chemicals. Secondly, that wherever you're putting your focus determines what chemicals your brain and body are producing because the connections in the neocortex trigger matching chemicals in your limbic system. And the third part is remembering that this is not just about feeling good. This is about keeping your cognitive thinking online. So it means that when you're feeling overwhelmed or when you're feeling tempted, like let's say you pass a casino and you feel like that compulsion, that impulse to go in, the thing you want right in that moment, the thing to remember is that part of your brain is offline already. So you want to go, okay, so I will go away and do something that feels good to bring the blood back to that part of my brain when I can strategize and work things out. And then I will make a decision what to do. So that gives you some time as well. Because if you went away and, um, you know, played a game or went for a, did some physical exercise or watched a funny movie or listened to music you loved or played with your pet or your children or whatever, did something that feels wonderful, then when you're feeling genuinely good, then you know the cognitive thinking part of your brain is back online. Then you can look at facts. And then you can strategize, make decisions, use your judgment, because then you've got the full cognitive thinking accessible. So you're going to tell me how to do that? <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, oh, sorry, you want to? Well, before we get into the solutions, I kind of, part of your, your program and your thinking ties into childhood experience. And I kind of want to stay on the origin before we get to the solution. Absolutely. Yes. So the second part is the childhood references. And so what happens is when a child is born and probably before they're born, but we'll say from birth, what, what happens is every, every experience, everything we experience is recorded by the subconscious, but not as a camera records it. It's not accurate. What happens is it interprets the experience and then files the interpretation, the meaning. And then every new experience is filtered through that data and added to it. And that's how we build the structure of who we are and how the world works. And it's why a baby can be born in rural Africa or Hollywood and learn to thrive in that environment, learn who they are and how the world works in that environment. So, for example, let's say a child is, is born to parents who are in love and loving, and they, could, they couldn't wait to have a baby. And when she's born, she's treated with love and kindness and respect, and her parents are calm, and they are financially stable. Everything's perfect, basically. Everything that child is experiencing, the subconscious is interpreting as I'm safe, I'm loved. The main thing is I'm safe because that's the basic instinct, but I'm loved, I'm respected, I'm valuable and so on. Now, let's say a little girl is born in the same hospital uh, to parents who are struggling. They're struggling through whatever reasons they've got their, they've got issues that they're challenged challenged with. They may have issues in their marriage. They may have financial problems. They may have addictions. There could be all kinds of stuff going on. And 
So that baby, I mean, this doesn't even need to be abuse. It can just be stress and the tension and that kind of thing. That little girl is going to, her subconscious is going to experience and interpret those experiences as I'm not safe is the main bottom line. I'm not valuable. I'm not worthy. And a whole lot of other beliefs that are filtered through each other and added to each other. So those two little girls go to school. Now they can encounter the same bully doing the same things. And the one child who was, who has that stress state. So apart from the beliefs that she has, that she's not worthy, she's not safe, she's not valuable. Her system is filled with stress chemicals all the time, which means her prefrontal cortex is offline a lot of the time and her reactions are going to be different. She will experience fear, anger, whatever negative experiences with this bully, the other one may not even notice the behavior or may laugh, may find it funny because she's got no reference for being in danger. She's got no reference for not being valuable. She's got no reference for being less than anything. Wow. Does that make sense? It does. It, it really does. Right. And then you take those two little girls and watch them grow up into teenagers and remembering that every experience is compounding, every experience is being filtered through the other information and enforcing those beliefs and those behaviors. Then you add to that trauma, which is the ACEs, so adverse childhood experiences. So the ACEs study covered that. And so you add into that any, so parents divorcing, even things like just moving schools, but then of course, going further into abuse and, you know, death and illness and all kinds of other traumas. And again, it's not just a trauma happening. It's not just an experience. It's given meaning. And it's given meaning based on what else is already there. So two children experiencing even, let's say, sexual abuse will have different responses. It will mean something different to each child based on what's already there, what, they've, what structure they've already got, the evidence of who they are and how the world works. So in every moment as an adult, well, all the way through, but let's say now we're all adults, in every moment, your subconscious is referring to that evidence that proves who you are and how the world works according to those experiences, and then prompting your brain to trigger your organs to produce matching chemicals. And then your conscious mind looks for reasons now. <laughs> Everything you just said makes so much sense, and I can relate to it. And I wrote down siblings. I was going to ask you, so if the parents are the same for the two siblings... Yes how can they either turn out the same or turn out different? And as I, as I reflect, just in my situation, there's me and my brother, and then I have a half-sister and a half-brother. And both of us, the females, have adapted and are successful by, if you consider being a gambling addict, you know, <laughs> successful. But our approaches on life and our work ethic and that kind of stuff is very different than both of our brothers. And I don't, I never knew if it was because we were female or because we were older or what that looks like. But the next thing that popped into my head was, and I remember this so clearly as a teenager, my mom had me young. So she had me at 18, 18 or 19. And I remember being that age and celebrating the fact I wasn't pregnant at 18. And I always said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to grow up to be different. Like I had always had that mission that 
everything I saw was not what I wanted to be. Yes. So I'm trying to internalize that. And these are the, the thoughts that you're kind of invoking in me. Yep. So is that, can you talk about the sibling? I can, and I have a great example of it for you. Great. So this is, this is one of the stories I tell t- that describes how this works. So um, Andrew and Martin are two brothers. They're twins. Okay, so these are twins. So they were born same time, obviously, to the same parents. Now they grow up and they're in the same family. They're treated the same. Martin is successful. He has his own business. He is happily married. He's financially stable. He has a great social life. He basically has a very happy life. He's healthy and active. Andrew, on the other hand, still lives with his parents. He is depressed. He suffers from depression, can't hold down a job and is hooked on painkillers. So what happened? What's the difference? Nobody knows what happened. You know, it must be their personalities or something. (laughs) All right. So now we're going to go back in time to when the boys were 18 months old. Okay. And they're in a, now I have to think because I'm in America, a stroller, right? I was saying push chair. Okay. <laughs> push chair. And, and, and I know my husband kept correcting me and I, I haven't told the story for a while, so I've forgotten. <laughs> so they're in a stroller. The mum the is pushing them in a stroller in the park. Now, Martin is wide awake and Andrew is fast asleep. He's in a deep sleep. And as they're going through the park, a dog starts running from the other side of the park towards the stroller barking. Martin sees the dog coming and is, oh, there's a doggy, you know, and he's, he's excited to see the dog. Andrew wakes up with a fright, a shock, as the dog barks right next to the stroller and starts crying. He wakes up with a shock, starts crying. His mum says, it's all right, sweetie, it's just a dog. You know, look at the doggy. And he is in a, now he's in a state of shock. And Martin, in the meantime, is petting the dog. And the dog owner is apologizing. The mum's going, it's okay. He was just, he was asleep. Everyone forgets about that incident. The next time they go to get in the stroller, Martin gets in the stroller, no problem. Andrew starts fighting, crying and resisting getting into the stroller. And the mum doesn't know what's going on. She's come on, sweetie. It's, and she, she's patient, but she doesn't know why. He's, maybe he's tired. Maybe he's hungry. You know, all of that. Eventually she gets him into the stroller and off they go and everything's fine. Now this happens over and over. And Andrew starts to appear to be trouble. He seems to be obstinate. He seems to be, they don't know why he's the challenging one. They try to treat both boys the same, but it's sometimes quite difficult because when they're running late and he's arguing or fighting or struggling, it obviously, there's things in their tones of tone of voice, there's things in their micro expressions and so on. When the boys are four years old, one Saturday morning, Andrew, who seems to be hyper, you know, compared to Martin, who's usually quite chilled, Andrew's running around and he runs into the corner of the table and gets a gash in his forehead. So his mum rushes into the emergency room and leaving Martin at home with his dad. And his dad is in the garage fixing a car and Martin is with him. And so he's bonding with his dad. His dad is explaining the tools to him, getting him to pass him things. And so he's having that lovely connection moment while Andrew is in the emergency room in pain. By the time they're ready to go to school, these boys are very different. Martin is kind of laid back. He's fine. He's friendly. Andrew is in fight or flight state most of the time. He's in that emergency state. He's got those stress chemicals running through his system and 
he he realizes that he's the tricky one. He doesn't know why, but he can tell there's a difference between him and his brother through all these little incidents. So they arrive at school. Martin fits in perfectly, makes friends easily. He start he joins in team sports. His coordination is great because he's in a calm state most of the time. Andrew hasn't got his prefrontal cortex on most of the time. So he's not learning as well. He's not absorbing the information. His brain isn't online. So he's not able to absorb and process information and retain information as well. And you can see how this just, just snowballs. He's not, he doesn't trust people as much because his system is in alert in survival. He's living in survival mode and this just builds and builds. He doesn't make friends easily. And you can see that by the time they leave school, Martin starts an auto shop, his own business, because he's got that background, that lovely connection with his father working on cars. And Andrew just keeps going in the other direction and no one knows that it started So what happened in the background was in that moment in the stroller, Andrew's brain made a connection between the stroller and danger. And no one knew that. So when he went back in the stroller, his brain set off the fight, freeze, flight state, the stress chemicals. And of course, he's 18 months old, so he has no idea. He's just not feeling, he's just feeling scared and he doesn't know why. And so he's screaming and crying and everything and no one knows why. So it just continues to snowball. Wow. So there's an example of of how the tiniest thing can set off a chain of events. Now to change that, what we do is we go back and we change the original memory. So In this case, we wouldn't know about, because he was 18 months old, he doesn't remember it, but we would go to the earliest event that he does remember and the subconscious has connected all of those events. So when you change one thing, either you will suddenly remember the other one or it will just change it automatically. He might remember the emergency room, but maybe not the dog. Right. And even more so when when I told the story before, actually what he remembers is when he was 14 years old, he was walking past, because the way we work, okay, so I might as well tell you, before I tell you how that was changed, I'll tell you um, what the process is. So what we do, it's very simple. It's not always easy, but it's simple, is you say, how do I know I have a problem? And then whatever that is, how does that feel? And then where in my childhood did I feel that same feeling? And it won't necessarily be the same topic, but it will be the same feeling. So with him, how does, how does he know he has a problem? And from his point of view now, as an adult, he's living in his parents' house. Why is that a problem? Because he's constantly fighting with them. He's constantly, there's this conflict. So how does he know that that's, so how does that feel? It feels frustrating. It feels like it feels unjust and so on. Where in his childhood did he feel it? He goes back to when he was 14 years old and he was grounded and he wasn't allowed to go to a party that he desperately wanted to go to. And so we go to that memory, we change that memory and I'll tell you, I'll go through how we change it in a a minute and why we can change it. And then as he's doing that, Another memory comes up from around the same time when he was 14 years old and he was walking past a junkyard and the junkyard, there was a dog that ran at the fence barking and he got a fright. And so we changed that memory 
and the subconscious automatically goes back and changes the original one with the dog in the park. And we don't even know that one. You're explaining my mother to me too right now. <laughs> wow. So that's, yeah, so that's the, uh, that's the basis of it. And so to change the memory, now this is what is so wonderful. So the latest in neuroscience has shown that memories are not accurate and they're not permanent. And in fact, memories are changing all the time. So memories are stored throughout the brain. They're not stored as a picture or a video. It's data basically throughout all the different parts of the brain. And when we recall a memory, it pulled, the brain pulls the data from all, like a jigsaw puzzle and puts it together. Now, it puts it together slightly differently every time we recall the memory because it's taking into account any other experiences and any other learnings and any other ways the brain has changed since the last time you recalled it. So when we then file that new version of the memory, the next time we recall it, we, so it's a bit like, you know, that broken telephone game where you whisper, <laughs> it changes. Each time you recall it, it changes. And so that fact combined with the fact that the subconscious can't tell the difference between reality and imagination is the reason we can change memories. Is that why I'm going to deviate just a little bit. Again, you're kind of sparking all this interest and enthusiasm and (laughs) (laughs) relative information. But would that be why when you were talking about collecting the new information, so an important part of my journey has been reading and learning you know, all this self-help stuff, trying to practice different things, whether it's meditation or different exercises or different travel experiences. So that's what's giving me a better foundation because I'm not undoing, but I'm changing my perspective, that that new perspective sticks. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. And, And it's how you can change a phone number. Right. So you'd, if you have a different phone number to the first one you had, if someone asks you your phone number now, the phone number that comes to mind first is your, the one you got most recently. But you'll know that you had other phone numbers. It's just that they're not the first ones to come to mind. And so with this, what we're doing is we're changing the memory in the subconscious. We're changing the subconscious conscious reference. But your conscious mind will still know the original. So the way, (laughs) and it's a little bit mind boggling, but the way I've changed, so using myself as an example, some of the things I changed. And and before I go into that, I just want to say that the way we change it, oh, let's do this. If you take a deep breath and imagine your front door for a moment and notice the color of your front door. And if it's not white, just make it white in your mind. Okay. Now imagine your front door is blue. And if you can't just make it blue in your mind, take out a pot of blue paint and paint it blue. All right. Now make it red. Now make it yellow and put some purple flowers on it. Purple's my favorite. (laughs) You can do that because you have no, presumably you have no emotional connection to your door, to your front door. The reason we can't do, because changing memories is as simple as that, but the reason we can't do it is because of the emotions. So I have a memory of, I had a memory where I was, I don't know, 11 years old or so standing in the doorway of my grandparents' bedroom. And my grandfather was sitting on the bed and next to him on the bed was a leather belt, brown leather belt. And I was standing there frozen, terrified. Now to change that memory, all I needed to do was imagine it differently, but I couldn't do that because of the fear. 
So the way we work is we bring the fear, we bring the, the negative emotions down so that there's no negative emotions. And then you can just imagine it differently, knowing that your subconscious will believe whatever you give it because it doesn't know the difference. So I changed that memory to now my grandfather sitting on the bed and instead of brown leather belt, it's a pink feather boa. <laughs> he's <laughs> playing, he's wearing the feather boa and playing around. So that is now a fun memory. But I still consciously know what happened because I just told you it was a brown leather belt. But when I think of that memory, the first thing that comes to mind is seeing my grandfather with a, with a pink feather boa and the smile on his face and the laughing and the fun. So it, because the truth is we don't need those memories anymore. Whatever lessons were learned or have already been learned and that's stored as data in a separate thing. We don't need the memory. And the memory is now just, just providing evidence of who we are and how the world works. And what changed for me there, I used to feel intimidated by older men. So whenever I was in the presence of, of an older man, I would feel stupid. I, would, I couldn't think straight. I couldn't function properly. And I would feel cringy and, and uncomfortable. And changing that memory along with a few others of my grandfather, I no longer have that reaction to older men now. Because in the past, my subconscious, I would come in contact with an older man, my subconscious was referring to the fact that I'm stupid or I'm, I should be frightened, is danger and all of that. And then prompting that stress response. Now it's referring to the feather boa. And so there's no threat. So there's no stress chemicals. Okay. I'm grasping this. There's, <laughs> there's a podcast that I listen to and, and you're validating kind of her point. And she talks about it in body image, right? So instead of saying, I have fat thighs, you just make it neutral. I have a thigh. (laughs) It doesn't evoke any emotion when you think it's just, I have a thigh. I have a knee. I have a... Right. So again, you're triggering neat little... My synapses are talking to themselves, I guess. Very good. Yes. And so what I would... So the way we would work with that is I have fat thighs. We would go, okay, so how do you know you have fat thighs? And it would be well because I'm looking at them and they're and they're fat. And how does that feel? It feel and then you go, okay, it feels I feel like I feel ugly. Where in your childhood did you feel ugly? How do you know? Because we can't experience anything we don't have a previous res- reference for. Everything is based on previous references. That's how we know how to react. That's profound. Yes. And so that childhood reference may not be to do with thighs or even fat. It could just be, I felt ugly because I had a different color hair to the rest of the kids in my class, or because someone once told me I was ugly, or because my sister was so pretty and everyone was always going on about how pretty she was and no one ever said I was pretty. So there's all kinds of possibilities there. Or my mother always talked about fat people. And so then I formed this reference. So there's just so many ways of that, those references being formed, but the way to track it down is those three questions. How do I know? How does it feel? Where in my childhood did I feel it? I couldn't really find a great spot to end this episode because I was enjoying myself so much. So before we got on another roll, we're going to end it right there. Uh, for this week's episode. And our positive quote that I think kind of ties in to Odile's story a little bit is, 
the following. It's from Tony Robbins this week. Our beliefs about what we are and what we can be precisely determine what we can be. So I hope you enjoyed Odile as much as I did. She'll be back next week with some more insight and wisdom. And gosh, how do you go wrong with that lovely English accent? Thanks for listening and have a great day.